Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. Shared decision-making has, for many, increasingly become a part of our practice in emergency medicine, to varying degrees. Today we're discussing a new paper in Academic Emergency Medicine about just that, entitled Shared Decision-Making in Patients with Suspected Uncomplicated Ureterolithiasis, a Decision Aid Development Study. Lead author Dr. Elizabeth Schoenfeld is here to discuss it with us today. Dr. Schoenfeld is an emergency medicine attending and researcher at the University of Massachusetts Bay State. She has a particular research interest in shared decision-making, and some of you may recall that she was here on the podcast back in 2018 discussing patient perceptions of shared decision-making, and we're excited to have her back with us. Don't forget to read the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Dr. Schoenfeld will mention a link to additional materials, and this will be available on our blog post as well. Dr. Schoenfeld, it's so nice to have you back on the podcast after a couple of years. Thanks for having me. So let's get some background. We're going to talk again with you about shared decision-making and decision aids this time. And when we talked about shared decision-making with you a couple of years ago, it was a, a different context in emergency medicine. And today we're going to talk about it in the context of uncomplicated Ureterolithiasis. I'm just going to say renal colic because I find that hard to say. But let's get everyone uh, on the same page in terms of what we're talking about when we say shared decision making. So I think that we all do it to some degree, some of us more than others. But how do you, and in terms of this paper, how do you define shared decision making? What is it? And what do we know about how it can affect patient care? I think the loosest definition of shared decision-making is that it's the conversation between the provider and the patient when a decision needs to be made. So to truly be shared decision-making, the doctor really needs to make clear that a decision needs to be made, explain the options and the consequences, and then elicit some feedback, get some sort of feedback from the patient about their preferences, um, their concerns, or that sort of thing. It's not really about who makes the final decision. It's really more about the process and how you got there in the conversation. And the benefits of doing it well, I think, can be pretty far-reaching. So first, there's increased knowledge and understanding. Um, And one of the things that people don't really think about is that it's actually increased knowledge and understanding for both the patient and the provider. So the patient understands the medical issues better and their own medical care better. And then the provider understands the patient's needs and the patient's agenda better. After that, there's increased trust in the in the provider because the communication is often better. And then I would say one of the biggest things is that you're giving the right care to the right patient. You're not doing tests or procedures that are based on your assumptions, but instead you're basing those decisions on what makes the most sense for the patient. Excellent. So now to talk about decision aids for a second, how have decision aids been demonstrated to help physicians with shared decision making? Like what's an example of a previously existing decision aid and is there actual evidence that they do actually help? So you definitely can do great shared decision making without a specific decision aid. And I think actually most of us 
do the majority of our shared decision making without a decision aid. In fact, some of us may do all of our shared decision making without any decision aids. Um, and there are not that many tested decision aids within emergency medicine, but there's dozens in other fields. So for us, the most well-known one is called chest pain choice, and it was developed and studied by Eric Hess and his team. And it was really well studied. So it had one um, good-sized randomized control trial, and then it had a second multi-center randomized control trial, which is you know really a pretty good gold standard. Um, and it basically helps providers discuss admission versus discharge for chest pain patients. And these two studies showed that it increased patients' knowledge and their own accuracy of what their own risk was in the context of chest pain, you know, their risk of an MI or their risk of death. And then in both studies, it also decreased admission rates to the hospital. So when you had a really good conversation, the patients understood things better and they were more likely to say, you know what, I'm going to follow up with my doctor rather than being admitted at this time. Um, in another multi-center randomized controlled trial, also led by Dr. Hess's team, there was a decision aid called Head CT Choice, and that was used with kids with head trauma, um, and that was about, you know, do we need a CT scan or should we do watchful waiting? And in that case, the decision aid lit led to increased knowledge and increased trust, but it didn't actually change the CT rate. Um, and the CT rate was about 22% for both arms of the study. So some outcomes that were important in terms of knowledge and emotionally important, but it wasn't an outcome in terms of uh, test utilization for that particular decision aid. So you mentioned a few reasons why uncomplicated renal colic is a scenario where shared decision-making could be of great utility and how a decision aid could be helpful to physicians who are encountering these patients. Can you tell us some of those reasons about why ureteral lithiasis is ideal for shared decision-making and the background about why your team embarked on this specific project? Absolutely. So this project has been in the works for nearly a decade, actually. So basically, I realized sometime, probably at the end of residency, that we were sort of constantly doing these CT scans and then telling people that they had these tiny three-millimeter kidney stones. So it's sort of like, hey, congratulations, it's a three-millimeter kidney stone and it's going to pass. Um, and then the literature was sort of saying the same thing, that the CT scan sort of rarely changed management. Um, and at the same time, so I graduated residency in 2009, you know, we were doing more and more and more ultrasound. And then there was a team led by Rebecca Smith-Bindman, and they published a randomized controlled trial that demonstrated that if you started with ultrasound, um, you know, some of the patients still got a CT, but overall patients had less radiation exposure in the end. So the evidence base started to sort of increase. Um, and, and here's where the shared decision-making comes in. Ultrasound isn't perfect, and CT scan does give you a little bit more information. So there are really distinct trade-offs. Um, and the large majority of young, healthy people with uncomplicated renal colic will do just fine without a CT scan. But our job in emergency medicine is often not about that majority of patients. It's about picking up that small percentage that do need a CT scan. And so that's one of the reasons why the CT scan just persists and persists. So years ago, I started explaining this dilemma to the patients um, and just getting their input. It's like, we have a decision to make. This is why people get CT scans, and this is why people avoid CT scans. And it always felt like the right thing to do, but it felt strange to me to teach my residents this thing that I was doing that didn't seem to have a solid evidence base. So I set out to both find the evidence, such as you know what, what, what's already out there, and then also create that evidence base. Excellent. So your team set out to make this decision aid to facilitate shared decision-making around whether to obtain CT imaging in patients presenting to the ED with suspected uncomplicated ureteral lithiasis. So can you educate us a little bit about 
establish decision aid design methods and how you incorporated them into your own paper's methods? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that uh, a lot of us are thinking about other decision aids that need to be created. So the short answer is that you need to engage the people who are going to use the decision aids, the stakeholders, as you do the development in all the stages of the development. So we did this through interviews and focus groups. Um, and of course, the people that you need to engage are you know, primarily the providers and the, and the patients. So then you start to create something and then you bring it back to those end users. And then you do this again and again. And then after a while, it's sort of you start, to, you start to pull something together and you realize that people like it and it doesn't seem to be changing much. And you just decide, okay, I'm getting closer to my end project. Um, uh, products because I've gotten feedback from all these end users about how it's going to be used and sort of what needs to be in it. So you engaged 102 participants in the design. And so to break it down, 46 were ED patients, community members or patients with ureterolithiasis, and the remaining participants were emergency clinicians such as doctors, residents, or APPs, um, or researchers, urologists, nurses, other physicians, very, very diverse. Um, and which seems appropriate for a group that's exploring shared decision making. Can you just briefly talk about how and why the diversity of this group matters and how you selected them? Yeah. So for this work, you really need the two main sets of people that you need are the providers. Um, and you want a lot from the providers. You you really want them to want to use this thing and to think it's helpful, otherwise they never will. And so you you know that sort of each provider has different needs and a different agenda. And so you really have to get a bunch of different providers, where the residents are, where the APPs are, where each individual attending is might be in a different place than another resident or another attending. So you need to really get different perspectives from different people. Um, and then the patients have a variety of needs when they come to the emergency room. They have a variety of agendas. They have a variety of, of literacy levels. So so you want to try to create something that works for as many people as possible. So you want to interview, you know, one physician who is really into ultrasound and get their perspective, but you also want to interview some other clinician who's like, I'm never going to not CT these people because you want their perspective as well. So you really want as much as possible, a really wide range of perspectives as you try to put this together. That makes complete sense. Um, and so then how did you proceed with your analysis and then actually creating this decision aid? So we used qualitative analysis techniques. So we I, we transcribed interviews and focus groups, and then we looked at the transcripts and we started pulling out the themes. You know, the big questions are what do people need? What are the questions we need to address? Um, for example, not surprisingly, we saw this very really strong pro CT bias from our patients. Um, there was a sense that you would really always want to have a CT scan. So then you know that your decision aid has to address that because if the point is to have a conversation about getting a CT or not getting a CT and someone already comes in saying, well, of course I would always want a CT, then that's really a barrier to having any sort of a conversation. Um, one of our patients had a great quote that was something to the effect of, well, the CT means the doctor is really listening to you and taking you seriously. And that's, that's really important to hear that that's what their perception of a CT is. And other people said things about the CT making you feel better, which obviously it doesn't. And so to us, this meant that we needed to be really crystal clear about what a CT really means. And then we also had to actively push back against some of the preconceived notions for both the patients and the providers. So those are the themes that you're sort of looking to pull out of these conversations. So can you discuss the results with us? Were there notable similarities or differences between patient themes and clinician themes that emerged? 
we saw some things that we expected and we definitely learned some new things. So we expected to see this pro-CT bias um, and, uh, and that is both in patients and clinicians, right? The CT is the path of least resistance for the physicians and there's definitely this concept of like, well, if I could get a CT, why wouldn't I get a CT? So we sort of expected to see that and we did. Um, and we expected that many of our patients would want to know more about the radiation exposure because it's pretty well established that many of our patients don't realize that the CT scans expose them to radiation and increase their future risk of cancer. Um, and similarly, we found that the providers didn't always have a great conceptualization of how much radiation it was. And so that came up from the providers as well. Um, but we found a couple of really sort of fun, unexpected things. So one of the unexpected, I'd say it was like a win, was that a participant made this point that, you know, if the doctor wasn't going to use a CT scan, th this person wanted to understand why the doctor suspected it was a kidney stone and sort of brainstormed this idea of, well, what if we had like a checklist? And the more things that were checked on the checklist, the more likely that it's a kidney stone. And this way, it would sort of decrease the uncertainty and increase the patient's trust in their provider. And it was also really transparent. So um, this led to this, at this part of the decision aid that's really interactive. The patient checks off these aspects that lead you to believe it's a kidney stone. For example, was it sudden onset? Did you have you know, nausea and vomiting? And then the doctor checks off things like, oh, yeah, you did have hematuria. And oh, yeah, you did have some hydronephrosis. And then in the end, they come out with sort of a sense of certainty. It's like, oh, you know what? You didn't have any of these five things that suggest a kidney stone. You know what? Our certainty is pretty low. You know, let's think about our next steps. Or, oh, you have all five of the things that suggest a kidney stone. All right. Well, our certainty is pretty high. Um, and, and that was something that both the patients and the physicians, you know, they had difficulty communicating, but also found was really important. So in the um, in the paper, you describe the concept of the nudge uh, in your discussion. What in this context, what is a nudge and why is it relevant here? So a nudge is a behavioral economics term for an intervention that preserves choice but encourages one particular option. And my favorite example is simply putting fruit first in the elementary school cafeteria line. Hungry kids take the fruit, right? And then a similar example is that there's candy at the supermarket checkout. So in both cases, you may not have sought out the fruit or the candy, um, and you have complete freedom to take it or to not take it, but when it's presented to you at the right moment, you're more likely to take it. So that's sort of a nudge. Um, and so for us, we knew that there was this strong pro-CT bias for most patients and many doctors. Um, and we also knew that the decision aid was actually designed to be used for people who had no indications for CT. So this was not for people with a fever, people who look sick, people who actually need a CT. This is really for people who more or less don't need a CT, but are getting CTs all over the country anyway. So we added this option that the doctor check off, you know, option A or option B before they give it to the patient. So there's actually a default checked off. And so you tell the patient, you know, here, read about your options. You know, this default is checked off, but like we can talk about it. That's not set in stone. Um, but I would say this is completely in an, in an experimental phase. I don't really have any data on the effects of a nudge yet. And I think that the nudge is not at all necessary as a part of the decision aid. I think that it's just sort of a separate little thing to investigate. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I would be, I would be really interested to see how often patients just sided with whatever the physician had suggested with the nudge. But, um, but that, as you said, is another, it's another study. Right. To be determined. <laughs> um, so 
After further testing, you do offer a final decision aid. Can you briefly describe that product and how a clinician might use it? Um, yeah. So one thing I, I feel the need to defend immediately is the fact that it's six pages. Um, <laughs> if you had told me when I started the project that the decision aid was six pages, I would have said that that's insane and it's a really bad idea. But um, but this came out of the research. So the base, the patients, basically, there's a lot of information that the patients wanted. And then the patients really were fine with these pages because a number of them said, listen, you guys are off doing your thing. We have nothing but time. Um, we want the information. This is not too much information. So a number of people at both ends of the literacy spectrum said, no, this is not too long. Um, it's also fairly simplistically written and it includes discharge instructions. So it's not a particularly dense six pages. It's a fairly useful six pages. So the idea is that you would see your patient and you would start the workup. And when I say we see your patient, um, we're talking about young, healthy patients. We're not talking about people who are immunocompromised or have had recent cancers or on anticoagulation, things that would make you worry about other things. But young, healthy patients who look like they have kidney stones. And you start the workup. So first thing you're going to do is treat their pain. You might give them some IV fluids. You're going to send the urine looking for infection and looking for hematuria. Um, and then I like to do an ultrasound while I'm giving them some IV fluids. Um, and so as you're treating them and taking care of them, you start to be convinced that it's a kidney stone and maybe they're starting to feel better. And at that point, many people in our country get a CT scan. But instead of getting a CT scan, you then hand them these pages and you tell them that you'll be back in 15 minutes to talk about it. And then you go and you take care of other patients. And then the pages get them up to speed so that when you come back, you're not answering the question of, hey, what's a kidney stone? You're talking about the nuances of whether or not to get a CT now or whether to go home and to follow up. And then they have this little set of pages that they can take with them. They can read it again. They can talk to family members about it. And it also helps with follow-up because it's pretty clear within the pages, you know, what are the medications you should try? When should you return to the emergency room? And what should you watch, should you watch out for? Um, and we sort of, uh, I, I didn't go into this thinking that the discharge instructions should be part of this. But what we found was that patients really wanted to know more about kidney stones and what was going to happen next as part of their decision-making process. So that really needed to be in there for them to decide whether or not they felt they needed a CT at that time. So what's next? Do you have further plans to study this decision aid? Oh, yes. So the development <laughs> process, um, as I described before, is not meant to sort of stand on its own. That is, you know, an evidence-based um, development process, but that's not really an evaluation. So we're currently doing a randomized controlled trial to see if the decision aid does what we think it does. So we're hoping that it increases knowledge and increases patient engagement and trust and that it decreases radiation exposure. And we're comparing it um, to usual care. Um, which means that they don't get the decision aid, obviously. We are giving them um, two of the pages from the decision aid that have the follow-up information in it so that it's fairly standardized. Um, also, you want to know, you know, does the decision aid have any negative effects? Like, does it increase uh, emergency department revisits um, or cause an increase in delayed diagnoses or an increase in the length of stay that the person is in the emergency room? Um, but one of our challenges is that because we've been talking about shared decision making for renal colic for so long, me in particular, that many of our providers at our institution are already doing shared decision making. And so they're doing <laughs> shared decision making in the usual care arm. Um, mm -hmm. So it makes for a challenging study. And I think we, what we really need to do is test this at a place that does lots of CT scans and not a lot of shared decision making. Um, so if that's your emergency department, please uh, drop me an email and we can talk <laughs> about doing an arm of our study there. Um, 
Well, that's excellent. I cannot wait to see what comes next. And hopefully we'll have another chance to talk with you when the next paper comes out. Yeah, that would be great. Um, I did want to add that, you know, if people look at the decision aid and they feel like they want to use it, um, it's not unreasonable to use it. There's no, there's nothing that says that like, oh, well, it hasn't been studied in a randomized controlled trial and therefore I can't use it because it's some, it's just like pulling patient information from up to date or off of a government website. If you have something that you want to communicate to a patient, you know, you're allowed to communicate sort of any way you want. So if you think that it meets your standards as a provider, you can use it. Um, and it's available via um, the, the um, online, the AM website. Um, and you should look at one of the tables, table three in the text talks about who you should use it for, which we talked about, you know, it's not for elderly people and it's not for people who are infected. Um, we think, you know, 18 to 55 is really who it should be for. Um, and then the other thing is there is also a link that I can provide that gives you brief instructions on how to use it and lets you download the decision aid as a PDF. Um, and there's a, a link to give me feedback about it on the things that you would change. Um, as well as to let me know uh, what you think about it so that I can get some feedback uh, from people who are using it in the community. So anyone who has any interest in using it or just looking at it is very welcome to do that. And I am very, very open to people's feedback. Well, I think everyone should check it out. So thank you so much for that. It has been a pleasure talking to you. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.